Welcome in. It's another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast as we make our way through the summer here alongside Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. Always great to have you with us. Coming up, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We've got a lot of topics, uh, including who's coming, who's going with the uh, NBA draft deadline having uh, come and gone, and also a little bit about what we're doing this summer and may even uh, talk shoes here at some point during our podcast. Chris, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, man, always glad to talk footwear. Um I'm relieved. I've, I've finished a, a big project I do for NBA TV every year. It's a, a draft book that they give to all their on-air and really off-air talent and, you know, people that build out graphics and stuff because it's really comprehensive. It's got all stats and stories and comments and stuff. Uh, it started, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago when I actually did some television for them and I walked into a production meeting with this big three ring binder and I dropped it on the table for effect and it boomed. And, uh, my producer said, what's that? And I said, this is my prep, man. And he said, let me see that thing. And he started looking through it and he said, you do know you're only on the air for eight minutes. Right. I said, yeah, man, but that's how I roll. (laughs) And, uh, then he said, what do you want for it? (laughs) And I told him and, he met the price and uh, been doing it ever since. So uh, he said before they used to just have a bunch of interns printing off, hurriedly printing stuff off the internet. So this is a book we used to print it. And now I, I turn it into a, uh, a PDF uh, book that they can load onto their iPads. So uh, it's a really convenient, I think it, it was just South of, of 500 pages wow. uh, this year. So I hope it helps them. Uh, as I mentioned, the draft deadline has come and gone. To me, the biggest decision was Zach Eady returning to Purdue. Yeah. Uh, Boilers look poised for another big year after they're you know, having the dubious distinction of being the second ever number one seed to lose in the first round. How significant was that? And any other surprises for you among players who decided to either stay in or return to college? Well, I think that was huge. Uh, I don't think Zach Eady wanted to go out that way. Uh, you know, Purdue's recent NCAA tournament uh, shocks us all. I, If I had to pick a bracket 100 times, I wouldn't have picked the way it's gone for Purdue the last two years. So uh, I think Eady wanted to go out. And, and really, honestly, he, he, he wasn't going to be in the first round and – a lot of people, experts in their mock brackets, or I mean brackets, <laughs> I've always always got college basketball in the mind. In their mock drafts, had him lower in the second round, and you know, foot speed is probably part of it. He's certainly a guy that that can play at the highest level. He can do some things that that you can't coach. Obviously, block shots, rebound. Uh, I think the Big Ten really benefited. Uh, Illinois got Coleman Hawkins, the center who led them in rebounding and assists back, and Terrence Shannon, uh, he came back. Uh, Michigan State got A.J. Hogard and Jade Makins back. Uh, so they've got five of their top six are returning. FAU, which got to the Final Four, uh, got uh, two important cogs back. Uh, um Elijah Martin and John L. Davis. So they've got all five starters back from a 35 and four team. And then I think Creighton was 
Creighton was a little scared for a while because they had some guys leave, but they got Trey Alexander and Ryan Kalkbrenner back, and I think they're going to be okay. And I know Alabama had to be sweating it out a little bit, although neither Mark Sears nor Javon Quinterly showed up on any, on any mock drafts. They both made the decision to return, so that's going to help. But as we'll talk about later, there's still some machinations going on with some transfers, most of whom also withdrew from the draft and now are available uh, to be recruited. And then as far as players that stayed in the draft, I saw where Jordan Walsh uh, decided not to return to Arkansas and, and, and will go in the NBA draft. So I thought that was an interesting one. A little bit of a surprise there because he's not expected to be a first-round pick. But I'll tell you what, he's a really good player. He's long. I think he's got a seven-foot wingspan it's at six seven. Uh, aggressive defender, team player, does a lot of things well. He needs to improve his jump shot. But as we've seen in the NBA playoffs, guys who enter the pros that are not very good jump shooters, they can become jump shooters. Sure. Because unlike the NCAA, which limits you to total 20 hours, a total of 20 hours of work per week, these guys can work on their games um, forever. And there's a lot of good shot doctors and coaches out there. We know one who played at Belmont and, and was a great shooter in his day. He's making a ton of money teaching guys how to shoot it. But, uh, yeah, I think Walsh Walsh did what he thought was best for him. Um, I'm not worried about Arkansas. They've got a lot of good freshmen coming in. And, and as always, a bunch of transfers. And they're still, as again, as we'll mention, they're still on the hunt for a couple of transfers. So it'll be interesting to see how all that shakes out. Uh, in the SEC, uh, I thought a little bit of underreported news for, for the team that I work for, and that's Vanderbilt. Tyron Lawrence decided to come back to school and play another year for the Commodores. Uh, he took a big step forward as a junior. He had a breakout season, averaging 13 points and four rebounds, shot 36% from three, made some big shots, including a buzzer beater three against Tennessee. But, you know, I, everybody kind of had both hands on the panic button a few weeks ago when uh, Vanderbilt had some players either transfer and, and in Tyron's case, decide to uh, test the NBA draft waters. But now you're looking at a team that's got three starters back. They added three transfers and uh, what is expected to be a good recruiting class. So it feels like uh, things have come together a bit for uh, Jerry Stackhouse's team here in just the last week or so. But that that was really big for Tyron Lawrence uh, to decide to return. And I guess I always sort of uh, kept the porch light on. I, I always held out hope that he was going to come back to school. I was never totally convinced he was either going to go to the draft or go play somewhere else. And I think that's a great decision for him. I think it was. I don't think he was going to be drafted. And if, you, if you're not drafted, that's, you know, there are no guarantees. You become a basketball gypsy, basically, either if you're lucky enough to go to G League and maybe get a 10-day contract or one day sign a two-way contract. But usually for yeah. those kind of players, it's overseas. Uh, but it was good for him to come back. A lot of people thought he was going to go to Auburn, which would have made ample use of his three-point stroke. But, uh, yeah, glad to see him come back. I'm sure all the Vanderbilt folks were, too. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, and as long as we're here in Nashville, uh, what about Belmont's Ben Shepard? He, he turned some heads the workouts and the combine. Uh, and it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Ian Clark a decade ago. Uh, he came out there. He finished his college career in 2013. He was a senior, uh, but he went and, and played in the uh, NBA summer league 
and really played great and was the MVP. And then he ends up a few years later being on a, a couple teams that made it to the finals of the Golden State Warriors and uh, won a championship and has gone overseas to Australia these days and won another title. But in, in some ways, Ben Shepard's uh, success and, and just the way he caught a lot of folks' attention uh, during the workouts, uh, it, it reminded me a little bit of Ian. And I, I think Ben is a good enough shooter and a good enough athlete that uh, he, he's going to probably catch on with somebody and have a chance to make some money here. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely in, in every mock draft that I've seen, you know, mid to lower second round. I think he'll be a real value pick there because, as you know, you called their games for, what, 17 years? Uh, they don't recruit – I mean, they recruit good kids there. They're smart kids, and they can usually shoot it. And he's got some size to him too, which is an underrated part of his package. Uh, and as you said, he impressed in, in the workout. So – I think he's going to be a, a you know, a, a multi-year pro. I think the the ability to shoot and the ability to be coachable and the desire to work on your game and get better and better, which he has all that, I think that's makes him very valuable. Chris, there are always lots of coaching moves every year, but one of the more interesting ones uh, just happened here in the last couple of days. What about Ron Sanchez leaving a head coaching job at Charlotte to return to Virginia as associate head coach under Tony Bennett? Yeah, I've talked to some people in the know uh, about that situation, and it came as a total shock to everybody, including Sanchez's agent and lawyer. I don't think he discussed that uh, with them. He just did it. Uh, Tony Bennett had an opening, and uh, Sanchez decided to go, even though they won 22 games uh, at Charlotte this year. Of course, that was in the Conference USA, which was a much-improved league this year, I might uh, add. Uh, However... Uh, you know, they're moving into the American and I think that was going to be tough. And, uh, you know, he worked with Tony from 2009 to 2018. And I think Virginia is, I wouldn't say struggling, but they've had some some issues. And, and I think he felt, I don't know, uh, he'd probably done all he could at Charlotte and it really leaves Charlotte in a lurch. It leaves Charlotte's coaches in a lurch. Uh, They had done a decent job in the portal it leaves them uh, in a state of flux. Uh, the guy who takes it is is going to have to have nerves of steel. I do hear, however, that they're willing to pay seven figures uh, to get a coach. And wow. I don't think in their history they've ever paid seven figures. There's a couple of candidates I've heard. Uh, they'd like to hire a head coach, I understand. Dustin Kearns from Appalachian State would be good. Uh, Mike Morrell from UNC Asheville is another one. Uh, Justin Ganey, the associate head coach at Tennessee, he's from North Carolina, knows all the coaches, played at NC State. He's a local hero and a great guy. I think he'd do well there. And then I'm hearing that there's a D2 coach, a highly successful D2 coach that could be a factor. And I've said it on this podcast before and on, on several others. I don't know why more ADs don't look to lower levels of basketball to find coaches. Uh, because there's some good ones at the D2 level there and NIA, but D2, there's, there's a lot of them. There's no question about it. As our good friend Lenny Acuff told us on the podcast a few uh, weeks ago, he's a former D2 successful coach at Alabama Huntsville. So that's an interesting deal at, at uh, I, you always hate to see it if, <laughs> uh, for, for selfish reasons for blue ribbon, because, uh, a late coaching change always means a domino effect. Yeah. Like, so 
they're going to take somebody from another school. Luckily, it happened in June and not July or August when stories were already written. But uh, it's a domino effect where, uh, you know, one school takes a head coach and then uh, the school that just got its head coach taken by Charlotte takes another maybe head coach. And all of a sudden you're rewriting three stories and uh, some extensively because people hit the portal when when coaches leave. And I was really shocked by that. And I, I have a good source there and, and I, I think they'll make a good decision. I, uh, but it's going to be tough on whoever takes it. So basically you're saying it's all about me and blue ribbon. Uh, when these coaching changes are made, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how does like, it affect on. me? Come on, man. That's right. <laughs> come on. Uh, I can remember some weird times. Um, like when, uh, the year Dean Smith retired, he did it right as the season was started. Yep. Uh, and Bill Guthridge and took over. Bill Guthridge took over and we had to rewrite that whole story. And, uh, it was it was a major headache because my writer who uh, who did the story for us was also with a newspaper at the time and he had to handle his business because uh, you know I'm not his primary source of income so I had to wait until he was ready to to rewrite that piece and but you know stuff like that happens all the time we come out a little bit later than than the other magazines anticipating things like that and you know I'm still looking. I'm still waiting on the portal. There's a bunch of portal stuff, which we can talk about. Um, there's a lot of decisions that need to be made. And some schools are panicking, <laughs> including Almighty Kentucky, which is a shock to me. They're down to seven scholarship players as we speak, waiting on Antonio Reeves, who also pulled out of the NBA draft. They really need him. But from what I hear, he wasn't real happy with the way he was utilized, at least early in the season last year. And with Kentucky bringing in some five-star freshmen, he wants to make sure he goes to a place where he's going to be a starter and a contributor from get-go. Yeah, he's a talented guy, and uh, that'll be an interesting situation to watch. Were you surprised at all that Oscar Shibway uh, decided to stay in the draft? No, I think by this time he needed to. It's, it's so crazy, but – Guys start getting 22, 23, and they're considered older prospects yeah. by the NBA and risks. You know, um, they want you when you're 19, 20, uh, so they can work with you. And I guess, I don't know, maybe they think guys are set in their ways. The thing about Oscar, he's a relentless rebounder. One of the best in, in the era that I've covered college basketball, if not the best. Uh, but the thing about him is, and this is so crucial, uh, not real quick laterally and can't really guard. Uh, you have to shift, uh, switch, and, and guard perimeter players in the NBA. And, yeah, you know, I think that's the knock on him. And he doesn't really have a refined scoring move. I think he has trouble scoring over length. And he doesn't have, like, a consistent jumper. They let him shoot at some. So, it surprised me a little bit, but it was getting to be about time for him. So I wasn't shocked by it by any means. Yeah, I think he's an interesting uh, player. And I, I didn't think for a minute that he was coming back to Kentucky. Uh, we were actually up there in early March when they had their senior night. And he went through all those things. And it felt very much like it was that was it for him playing his last game at Rupp Arena. Uh, like you say, he's a fantastic rebounder. And, you know, a lot of his points he can get on, on putbacks and things in college, and those things are going to be way harder to come by in the NBA. 
Um, no you know, doubt. And his scoring ability and his shooting, it was funny. Uh, we were talking about those very things when uh, Kentucky played at Vanderbilt back in January. And then he steps out there and he makes about two or three, you know, 15-footers, and you're saying, okay, you know, where, where, where did this come from? But uh, I, yeah. I, th- I think he's a really interesting prospect uh, coming up for this draft. Yeah, I mean, you know, they always say uh, that rebound translates from level to level. And and they also say, uh, whoever they is, that if you've got one elite level uh, ability, then you've got a chance. And he's an elite, elite rebounder, a relentless rebounder, a guy that studies it kind of like Dennis Rodman did and, you know, tendencies of where guys miss and, he rebounds out of his area, in his area, offensive glass, defensive glass. He's just got a relentless nose for the ball. So good luck to him. Uh, he was a solid citizen, a good dude. And he he did ride by Kentucky, but near the end last year, there were fans really that were kind of getting on him. And, uh, man, it's it's going crazy there right now. There's a couple of couple of transfers they're, they're waiting to hear from the, to see if uh, – they can restock their roster a little bit. And again, they're hoping Antonio Reeves doesn't himself transfer out, but he may. Yeah. It's a baseball school these days, you know, they're, they're on the way to the uh, the super regionals to play against LSU this week. Uh, You're a long way from assembling a full top 25 for blue ribbon, but give me a thought or two about Kansas and maybe Duke traditional powers who seem to be on everybody's list, especially after the, the wave of transfers and, and signees and all those sorts of things. Yeah, you talk about uh, a couple of things that we spoke of uh, already. The portal and players returning from the draft. Both were affected. Uh, The Jayhawks obviously signed what many think is the best player in in transfer history, Hunter Dickinson, the big center from, from Michigan. I think he was worried about NIL deals. He wasn't a guy that was turning up on mock drafts very highly. So uh, he's going to be a huge factor at, at Kansas because Bill Self knows how to use big men. And then they got Kevin McCullough Jr. back from the draft, which I don't think they were expecting. And they've got three – they've got some talented returning players, there, especially Dewan Harris, a, a true point guard. They got another transfer named Nick Timberlake who came from Towson, but he's a great shooter who will replace Grady Dick. I don't know if he's as good as Grady Dick, obviously, but – He's that in that mold. Duke really benefited from uh, kids who decided not to go pro. Jeremy Roach uh, pursued it the hardest and withdrew. Uh, Tyrese Proctor, the freshman point guard. Uh, Mark Mitchell, the, the freshman small forward, uh, also decided to come back. Oh, I forgot about Kyle Filipowski. Didn't even put his name in. The sophomore big. And then they've got, oh, by the way, four five-star freshmen coming in. So it's going to be between Duke and Kansas, probably for my number one or two. I saw some pundit posit that uh, I I don't know who he covers, but he said that Purdue was far and away the most talented team next year. I almost wrote him back on Twitter and said, did you forget about Kansas and Duke? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there's no way – uh, Purdue is far and away more talented than Kansas or Duke. I, to me, it's going to be between one of those two. Uh, and like I said, there's still transfer activity going on. Uh, there's some players that 
I don't know. One of them may end up in uh, who who knows. One may end up in Kansas. This kid Arthur Kaluma from Creighton. He's supposedly down to Alabama, Kentucky, Texas, and Texas Tech. But Bill Self has a way of of pulling rabbits out of the hat late. So uh, you you just never know. Real quick, uh, SEC held their meetings in Destin last week. Uh, it felt like all the talk was about the football schedule with Oklahoma and Texas joining and whether to play eight or nine games. Also, some discussion in the Big 12 about expansion, uh, maybe adding UConn and or Gonzaga, so that might be something to watch as well uh, with that conference. I, I think that's, uh, you know, you, geographic things don't really seem to matter a whole lot anymore. And, man, you, you talk about stretching from border to border. That would be the case if the Big 12 added those teams, which I don't even know that Gonzaga has football. UConn has football, but, you know, it's not quite at the level of some of the teams in the Big 12 these days. So, um, yeah, that, that could be uh, interesting to watch to see what might happen with those teams or, or maybe some others with that league. I might have a little bit of a regional bias here because I live in SEC territory but it doesn't seem quite as weird for texas and oklahoma to skip to the sec geographically as it does for yukon and gonzaga like you said literally coast to coast to hook up with a big 12 but it's equally bizarre for usc and ucla to go to the big 10 i just wouldn't want to be the rutgers women's tennis team that has to fly to ucla (laughs) for for a match but uh I don't know. It's 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 not about geography anymore. It's not about common sense. It's it's about the almighty dollar. So uh, we'll see. Um, I know uh, the West Coast Conference has done everything in its power to keep Gonzaga, uh, done everything Gonzaga's wanted. Uh, you know, to include not increasing the the amount of conference games. You know, the West Coast has already taken a a hit from the Big 12, which stole BYU. And, you know, that was a good, uh, you know, the West Coast had taken BYU from the Mountain West, which, as we know, is a multi-bid NCAA league. And and that's going to hurt the West Coast Conference. So, I don't know. I There's a little something about Gonzaga that there's a little bit of a mystique where they are and and it's just such a great story almost a unicorn story and not that they couldn't compete night in night out uh against the big 12 but i don't know that their story would be so special anymore right because now they can play five or six power conference team every year and win four of those games uh at least and i don't know uh i just think it it ruins their story a little bit. So I'm I'm hopeful they stay put, but, you know, that's just me. Yeah, like you say, money talks. We've seen that in, in more than one sport here just in the last few days. Uh, Chris, before we move on to uh, what you and I are doing this summer, give me a couple more names that, that are out there in the portal that people might should uh, keep an eye on as far as uh, new destinations. Oh, absolutely. I, I love this. Uh, people call it the silly season, but I don't think it's silly at all. I, I think it's cool. Uh, UConn just got Cam Spencer last night. Uh, we we taped this uh, uh, on a uh, Wednesday, and on Tuesday night, uh, he's a six four shooting guard from Rutgers, who last year shot forty three percent from three, and he's a forty percent career three shooter. He'll fit right in at UConn, which buried its opponents in the 
in the NCAAs by having multiple three-point shooters. Olivia Kamwa from Tennessee, he put his name in the NBA draft. I uh, was actually invited to the G League combine. <clears throat> I don't think he liked what he saw. And now he's reportedly down to Baylor in West Virginia. Who knows what will happen there? A kid named Grant Nelson, 6'11", from North Dakota State. He's a power forward. He's reportedly down to Alabama and Arkansas. And I'll tell you what, uh, after losing uh, Noah Clowney uh, and Charles Bediaco, Alabama needs a big man desperately. So uh, they're hopeful that I guess he goes their way. And then there's another kid who's down to two SEC schools, a guard from UC Riverside named Zion Pullen. He's a true uh, setup guy who can also score. He averaged 18 points and more than four assists last year. He's down to LSU and Florida. So those are the names I'm still keeping an eye on. Um, I'm, I write some of those schools. Not that it's all about me again, but uh, <laughs> I like to be in the know. You know what I mean? And, yep. and uh, so I keep I keep voluminous files on kids. And uh, in the event they turn up at a school that I write about and uh, some of the stuff I, I, I look at what other writers have written and some of the stuff I go out and find myself. I'll just call a coach that I know and say, hey, what do you think about this kid? Would he fit in here? Would he fit in there? And so I'm, I just try to be as prepared as I can. All right, Chris, uh, obviously no, no college basketball games going on right now. We talked about sort of the silly season or off season, whatever you want to call it, as far as uh, constructing rosters and coaching moves and all those things. But what do you do when you're not watching or writing about basketball? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Uh, I, I've been a reader all my life and uh, I come by it. Honestly, after my dad retired at age 60, he read five novels a week, a week, a week, a week. And he would wear out this little local library where I live. I'm now a board member of that library. I just did it in honor of my, of my pop. Um, so I try to keep a book going all the time. I'm, I'm not faithful to it during basketball season, but I'm reading a crazy one now. It's called American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And if anybody doesn't know who, who, he, who he is, there's going to be a huge movie that comes out in July about Oppenheimer. Obviously, he headed up the Manhattan Project. He was a brilliant uh, physicist and I think he had an idea because he got his graduate degree in Germany that the Germans, uh, then led by uh, uh, Hitler, were advanced and working toward an atomic bomb. And it was sort of an arms race. We felt like we might need the bomb to win the war. And as it turns out, the Manhattan Project was successful and built a bomb. And by that time, though, Germany had surrendered. And there's some feeling. And even Oppenheimer believed it. We used the bomb twice on Japan and and really didn't need to. And the tragic story of Oppenheimer is that he was so guilty that we'd unleashed nuclear warfare, and he spent the rest of his life uh, trying to dissuade other countries from building up their nuclear arms. And this was in the era of McCarthyism. Right. And he actually lost his security clearance. People thought that uh, he had actually palled around with uh, 
back in the day, back in the 30s, um, uh, left-wing politics and and uh, communist party was was common uh, in the United States, and so because of that, he lost his security clearance. So it's a oh man, it's a monster of a book. I don't know anything about quantum physics, so I'm a little bit lost there. But I've always been interested in the Manhattan Project, and I'm I'm kind of a World War II buff too. So. I'm I'm reading as fast as I can because I know I'm within two weeks of having to get back on Blue Ribbon. <laughs> so you got to get the get the work, get the reading. Uh, my wife actually got me a book for our anniversary called "The Storyteller." It's by Dave Grohl, the uh, of course famous. I've, uh, I've read that rock and roller. You'll love it. <clears throat> yeah, uh, I actually got the audio book, and my son hit me to audio books because. Uh, like you, I like to, to uh, well, you run more than, <laughs> I'm more a walker, you're more a runner. Uh, but I like to listen to stuff when I'm out. And uh, so I listen to it uh, when, when I'm out working out and, or in the car. And uh, Dave Grohl is just such a great guy. He's as close to a 60s, uh, 70s era classic rocker as we've got uh, working today. And his book is really good. He owes a lot to his mother who gave him the freedom at age 16 to quit school and and go out touring with a band. And you'll really like the book, man. Yeah, for, for me, if I'm walking or running or driving, I'm more likely to be listening to material from Dave Grohl's day job <laughs> than, than I yeah, might, might be exactly. an audio book. I got to have music, you know. I got to have something, you know, some, some rock and roll going you. on. That's usually what I, I have happening. I hear you. Uh, for me, I just finished another baseball announcing adventure. Unfortunately, uh, I thought we were going to have some more games to play with Vanderbilt, but lost in the NCAA regionals in Nashville on Sunday. But I, I think college baseball is just a terrific product. It, it probably deserves more run and attention that it gets. But in calling a lot of college games over the last few years, I, I've come to realize that I really enjoyed it and I, I like the competition, especially in like uh, a power conference like the SEC. Like so many things, the SEC is just fantastic in, in baseball. And if you have a league where the last two national champions have come from your league, and neither one made the conference tournament this year. That tells you yeah. something about the level of competition in the yeah, Southeastern Conference, you know? Mississippi State, that's insane. Uh, yeah, I I really got into it. I'll tell you what, really, you invited me into the broadcast booth uh, last year when we were together in Nashville to go see a, a music show, and uh, your day job, uh, before we went out to the show, we, uh, you let me come into the booth and they were, Bandy was playing Tennessee and I just really got a kick out of it. And uh, I understand why they use aluminum bats uh, because I'm sure they can't afford all the, the breakage of wooden bats, but man, the sound and the power that those aluminum bats generate, it just, it's scary really, man. I, I'd, I'd hate to be a third base coach. <laughs> right. Standing there without a glove. Yeah, there, there's a reason uh, I, Tim Corbin stands pretty far away uh, down that third base line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he knows one might be come right back at him. I've always loved college basketball. Uh, as a young reporter, I covered it some. I haven't covered it in recent years, but I love to watch it. And uh, I'm going to follow with great interest the SEC teams. I, I'm going to admit to some regional bias there uh, because I, I get to see a lot of SEC baseball because of the sec network and and uh 
So the, the SEC is still rep- represented yeah. in the Super Regionals, although Tennessee getting was forced to go play at Southern Miss. And the, the big news around where I live is everybody's bone because they thought Tennessee had better credentials than Southern Miss, and now they have to go on the road. But that doesn't mean anything because Tennessee was the number one team in the country last year, and Notre Dame went to their place in the Super Regionals and came out uh, winning and got to the College World Series. So you just never know. Ole Miss was on nobody's radar last year and ended up winning in all. So it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, Ole Miss barely made the tournament last year. Then they won the national championship. Uh, SEC has six teams left uh, as far as the the ones that will be uh, vying for trips to Omaha this weekend. And for, for Tennessee, that game against Clemson the other night when uh, they were down to the last strike and, and got a ninth-inning home run to actually go ahead at that point. Clemson tied it, and they played 14 innings, and Tennessee won. But to me, that might be a game that changed their whole season uh, because – Oh yeah, it wasn't in, in a three. It was a three-run homer, right? Right. Yeah, staying in the winners bracket yeah. in in the regional part is paramount, and and Clemson was knocked out in the next game by Charlotte, and Tennessee ends up going to the Supers, even though they have to go on the road. I think they have a great chance to win against Southern Miss this weekend, but we'll see. Uh, another thing I've been doing and just started last night actually is watching the thirty for thirty about Bill Walton called the luckiest guy in the world. They showed the first two parts. Uh, on Tuesday night as we record this, and they'll show the the final two parts next week. But it's a full detailed dive into Bill Walton's life in and out of basketball. It talks about everything. His time at UCLA, protests, uh, the letter he wrote at one point to President Nixon and and, and uh, tried to get John Wooden to put his signature on it, uh, injuries that derailed really the, the start of his NBA career with Portland. I can't wait to see the other two parts of it because it's just fascinating to see about this guy and they, they jump all around different parts of his life they show his boys and his family now and his wife and they show their house where it has all this memorabilia from rock and roll including the grateful dead which he said he'd seen over a thousand times but uh it, it's really good stuff chris you'll you'll really enjoy it because i know like me you're, you're kind of fascinated with with bill and his work uh not only on the air but also his career as a player back in the day uh, no doubt i'm a i'm a fan uh I wonder if they showed his TP where they did. Uh, he was reading <laughs> uh, on, on his Twitter feed. He's in his TP reading a copy of Blue Ribbon. So thanks <laughs> for that, Bill. Uh, I was a big fan of his when he was in college. I'll never forget the near perfect game he had in St. Louis against Memphis. Uh, what was it? 21 of 22 field goals. And that was during that ridiculous era when they, the NCAA banned the dunk. So uh, Greg Lee would just kind of hoist it up to him and he would just drop it over the rim. Uh, but he was unstoppable and he was a great, he was uh, uh, the uh, the jokic of that era, I think. Uh, such a great passing big man and uh, great court vision, unselfish, uh, great teammate. Now he drove John Wooden nuts uh, with his hair and, and his facial hair and, and his predilection for, uh, let's say, some smoking material. And and I don't know, uh, like like you said, he was a huge uh, deadhead. I think he actually drummed with the dead for a while. <laughs> but now everybody knows him as the, the loopy uh, color analyst. It's crazy. Every Almost every day I open up Twitter, Bill Walton is trending. <laughs> and it's like, what does he do every day that causes him to trend? I don't know, but 
I'm glad you told me about that 30 for 30. I, I'm ashamed to admit I didn't know about it, and I look uh, forward to seeing it. I I hope I can I can uh, find it. Do you think they'll they'll put all three parts together somewhere? And, oh, I'm and sure they will. On? Yeah, it'll be easy to find. Uh, yeah, the, the first two parts were, were last night, then the others will be coming up next week. So, yeah, you, you should have plenty of opportunities to watch it. And you were talking about that game in St. Louis where he only missed one shot. There, there's some funny stuff in there with him and John Wooden about that particular game, even years later when they uh, d- discussed it. And also you're talking about his drumming with the Grateful Dead. He actually has one of their drum sets in his house, and they, they show that. So you'll get a kick out of seeing that stuff. That's great. All right, Chris, to wrap up, we, we promised some uh, some talk about footwear, and you you showed me a, a great article about Chuck Taylor sneakers, the, the famous Converse Chuck Taylors, Converse All-Stars. Uh, Jason Jones wrote a piece in The Athletic where he talks about the origin of the famous shoe, which was introduced over 100 years ago back in 1917. The low-top version came along in 1957. The canvas version was last worn in competition by Tree Rollins in the 1979-80 season in the NBA. But these, these shoes, more than basketball shoes back in the day, they become sort of a, a cultural icon now worn by just everybody everywhere. Yeah, they, they really are. And uh, if you think about it now, when when the switch was made to leather, I, I think it was – and people wear high tops. It was obviously for ankle support, but then ironically, Kobe Bryant and others started back wearing low tops because they wanted the mobility for their ankles. But Chuck's persist. Uh, Chuck Taylor, for anybody that doesn't know, he didn't join uh, the Converse team until uh, 1922. And he was a salesman who went around the country giving uh, basketball clinics and he was the very first uh, person to ever endorse a shoe back in the 30s. And uh, that's why they're called Chucks today. And it's funny, uh, they, they go across socioeconomic paths, you know, from the rich down to the not so rich uh, wear them. You're going to like the reason I, I have my current pair. I used to be a huge collector when I was younger. I remember I had... My high school uh, main color was red, so I had red. I had Carolina blue. I had purple, which purple is my favorite color. Uh, but I, I went for years without having any, and I just thought they were cool. You know, my kids have them. My students have them. It's funny now, uh, some of the girls can get them with kind of stacked soles, oh, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, so uh, – I was looking, I was reading a story about one of your all-time favorite bands. And and, and I think you, you probably know who it is because you've seen them a bunch. We're, we're talking about Rush. And there was a picture of Getty Lee sporting uh, a brand new pair of black Chuck Taylors low top. And I said, dang, those are cool. And I dialed up to Amazon immediately and ordered a pair. <laughs> and I wore them the next day. And, of course, they were white as can be and clean. And my students <laughs> made fun of me. It's like, Professor D, your chucks are a little clean, aren't they? I said, well, give me a break. I haven't been able to break them in yet. But, you know, you, you have to get them filthy. I, <laughs> I had a student. Uh, she was, I guess, 22 when she graduated. She'd had this pair of white high top chucks since she was a teenager <laughs> and they were filthy and 
they were torn and stuff, but she could not get rid of them. They were just a fabric of her life, you know? So um, I think it's cool. I, I can't think of any comparison other than maybe Levi's uh, that have endured uh, that that cuts across socioeconomic uh, barriers and and is so popular than than the Chuck Taylor. Yeah, and, and Nike owns Converse these days. And my, my friend Tim Thompson, who I work with on the Vanderbilt broadcast, I mean, he he worked for both for years and years, and he can really tell you the stories about these things. But there is a store in, in the Opry Mills Mall here in Nashville where I live. This pretty much sells nothing but Chuck Taylor's as a Converse store, and that, that's what they sell. My wife loves them. Uh, she has several pairs, and she wears them to, to teach little kids. And uh, she has, like, yeah. a purple sparkly pair, and she has a pair that, that kind of looks like, I don't know, like an alligator skin or something like that, that this sort of a teal color. Uh, but, yeah, they, they come in all shapes and sizes and colors and patterns and all those things. I have a low-top pair of, of navy blue ones uh, that I have. I don't get them out of wear them very often. But, you know, I was thinking about my own interest in shoes and Chuck Taylor's by the time that, you know, I was going into, say, middle school or high school when when those things really started to be popular. Uh, it was more about the leather basketball shoes. Uh, the Dr. J's were out when I was like probably 10 or 11. And then my, my favorite pair that, that Converse made was the Converse StarTech. And I always say, if they made a retro version of that and sold it in that Converse store at the mall, I'd go over there today and buy a pair. You were talking about <laughs> you're talking about purple being your favorite color, which is interesting because my high school, our, our high school's nickname was the Purples. And so wow. uh, they had purple Converse StarTech, and I always wanted a pair of those. And, and if I could get my hands on a pair, I'd probably uh, wear them all the time. But uh, I just thought that was that was a really interesting story that you told me about, about the origins of the Chuck Taylor and, and just how they've endured over 100 years. It's really interesting. Yeah, you know, kudos to the athletic for coming up with something during, uh, you know, basically al- almost an off-season of basketball. We're, we're near the – nearing the end of the NBA season and the college season is over. And I just thought it was a great uh, story. And I, you know, it's a story I'll probably show my, my students just how you can be industrious and come up with something good during a time when, when that sport may be dormant. Well, just make sure you wear your uh, clean white chucks the, the day that you go to uh, tell them that story, huh? That's right. Chris, always great, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, buddy. Thanks. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast, and we'll talk to you next time.